just before Vicki comes, I wanted to take this opportunity to say, um, Austin doesn't need me to introduce him, uh, so that's not what I'm really doing, but we're going to be hearing from Austin this morning, Austin Snively, who's an intern with us. He's going to seminary, and while he's doing that, he's, he's working here with us on his way to uh, ordination in our denomination, so it's just a joy, and I just wanted to remind you that this is a part of our mission statement, so I do this every time to say, uh, this is a big Sunday. This is not a throwaway Sunday. This is a big Sunday because it's the future on display, and so um, thank you for showing up and doing that, but I also wanted to remind you of the ministry of countenance okay there is a ministry to countenance do you know what i mean by that like your face communicates and sometimes being up on stage and looking out there we don't necessarily receive the ministry of countenance what's happening worship is not what's happening from like where that crosses this way forward Right? Worship is what's happening in the room as we gather. Worship is what's happening at home even as people are maybe underneath the covers on this cold morning watching. Worship is what ha- what's happening together. What's happening here should set off an explosion of stuff happening there. And so you can minister to the people here by what your face looks like. And so put your face on notice. What kind of ministry do you want to have with your countenance? Not just to the people up here, but as we greet one another and so forth. So let's lean in. Let's smile. Let's, let's have a sparkle in our eyes. Let's look like we're paying attention, okay? Because, because I've said before, churches make great preachers. And this church excels at that ministry. And I want us to continue to do that. So again, thanks for coming this morning. Be an encouragement to Austin as he comes. Uh, this is a really, really neat time for us as a church. And just anyway, just be mindful of those things, okay? Thanks, Vicki. Uh, as Drew said earlier, I'm Austin Snively. I'm not a pastor here. That's too tempting to not say. There's Carter giving me the, uh, what Drew called the blessing of countenance. Um, so appreciate that. Thank you. Um, it's too tempting to say I'm not a pastor here because every time they get up there, they're like, I'm a pastor here and I'm not, but, uh, they do let me get up here and preach every once in a while and I appreciate it. Uh, and then this morning as we come out of Advent and celebrating Christ's birth and Christmas on Friday, I thought it'd be fitting to just skip forward a couple chapters to the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry in Matthew chapter four. And it's kind of going to connect to the series we've been looking at uh, in November with Christ as the coming king, the one who conquers, uh, conquers our enemies of sin and death that we can never hope to overcome on our own. And the series we've been doing for Advent in December with Christ as the coming savior, born to bear the sin of the world, God with us. Uh, And now, like I said, we're going to look specifically at the beginning of his ministry, what he's proclaiming, uh, and that's his coming kingdom. And y'all might have kind of sensed a little bit of a theme in the the worship leading up to this point. Uh, and y'all are going to have to bear with me. I gave Joe the main text. It's Matthew 4. But I'm going to kind of be all over the place because the kingdom of God is a big topic. It spans the entirety of the Bible. Uh, and I want to use this text kind of as a springboard to, to get us there. Uh, because it's a theme that helps us make sense of our hope. And as we've said around here before, hope is living deeply affected in our present by our promised future. The kingdom Christ reign, that's our hope. That's the promise that should affect how we live uh, because it is the most awesome and the true awe sense of that word, not just how we typically use it, thing that has ever happened. Uh, It's the plan of God to have his reign fully realized over the culture of sin and unrighteousness in this world and in our hearts and to have us, his people, come back to him. It's really about a relationship with him, and that's really great. So I want to start this morning by looking at Matthew 4. Read with me there. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in the boat with their father mending nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, What I hope that passage can do for us this morning is really let us see the gospel as a proclamation of the kingdom like Jesus says right there and how that is a dynamic and redeeming reality that gets to change everything about our lives and the world we find ourselves in. Uh, In your worship folder, you'll see I actually got an alliteration. I didn't get to do that last time. I was kind of proud of myself. there's, there's three R's there. Uh, first is reign, and the two that come from that, the redemption and the reconciliation. Uh, but first, looking at reign, uh, a kingdom implies a king, doesn't it? And there's a, there's a coming kingdom here is what Christ is saying. So he is saying he is the coming king. He is the one who is Lord over all of creation. And you can kind of see it in that first verse and the last verse. They both have the word gospel. That word in the original Greek, it's literally good news. It's often proclaimed as a military triumph. Uh, The enemy is defeated. Your people are safe. Your kingdom is won. And Jesus takes that word here and he uses it to describe his earthly ministry. He is the king. He is one and his people are safe. One author I came across this week said that the way of summarizing the Bible's major theme is the lordship of Yahweh. And this is what we spent time looking at back in November. He is the king coming in conquering power to defeat sin and death and subdue all nations opposed to his reign, whether they're physical nations or the nations in our heart that we try to use to rule others and ourselves. All of scripture testifies to this. He's the one with the power to create all things, according to Genesis 1 and 2. All he has to do is speak, and planets and solar systems burst into existence. Life springs forth from the ground. Oceans are confined to their boundaries. He is powerful. Genesis 3 tells us he's also the one that has the power to judge all things, the authority to judge all things. We see it right after the fall. He issues a judgment on sin and the serpent and promises their final destruction. And they are powerless to do anything against his judgment. But so are Adam and Eve. That They have a punishment of their own. Death is the consequence of their failure to live in his intended purpose for them. As we go forward a little bit, he's the one who has the ability to unseat kings and establish nations. We see it in the Exodus. It's what he does overthrowing Pharaoh and Egypt and leading his people out to a good land. He's the one who gives Israel the good land in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. We can see it. He says over and over again, I give you this land, a land that you're coming into that you didn't build the houses, you didn't plant the fields, but you get the blessings anyways. And now in Matthew, here he's telling us Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom and his lordship over all things. He is testifying to that lordship and that power and that authority that we see through all of scripture. He made the world and he gives it his purpose and that reign is reason to obey him, to come to him. Uh, Because he's telling us the best way to live. It's It's a handbook to human flourishing. It is the best way to live, he knows, as the creator, how we are designed to function, right? In verse 17, if you look there, the word repent 
is used. That's a call to turn away. That's literally what the word means, to turn away from. It's a call to turn away from the culture of our hearts and of the things of this world that are temporary back to the good created order, back to him. He gave that to us as a gift so that we can properly relate to him. God doesn't just give us this law arbitrarily. He's not just great. He is a God not waiting to execute judgment on us. He's not spring-loaded, ready to punish you. No, his primary way of relating to you as a king is his goodness, and that is really cool. Last week, we could see it, right? We looked at uh, John and Elizabeth and Mary, and they're rejoicing at the birth of Jesus because he is the good and great God who has come to earth. He is full of grace and full of mercy and full of righteousness and justice, and he came to save us from the enemy that we can never hope to overcome. And he does that by establishing his reign and his rule over all things. And now here in Matthew 4, we can see it again. Look at how the first disciples respond to him. Immediately, they stopped what they were doing and they left everything to follow him. They have this impulse to follow Jesus, right? There's, there's something about him. His very presence commands a response. And it's a, it's a physical look at repentance. They are turning away from what is in front of them and forsaking any other hope and turning back to Jesus and the Lord. Even before the disciples know what it is that Jesus is coming to do, they have to respond to his call. And so do we. As I was preparing this week, I, I was reading Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus' storybook Bible, uh, which is great. And she just summarizes these stories in a way that, that I can't really hope to. So I'm just going to steal from her this morning when she's talking about this, this uh, story. Jesus called out to them, let's go. Peter, Andrew, James, and John looked up at this man on the shore and they couldn't explain it. Their boats needed to be put away. Their nets needed mending. Fish were still wriggling on the beach, but something about this stranger made them drop their nets and their fish and leave their boats and everything to follow him. This God-man was like no one they had ever met. When they looked at Jesus, their hearts were filled up with a wonderful forever sort of happiness, and inside it was as if they were running through an open field. Meeting Jesus would change them forever. Isn't that great? You can see his kingly authority and power. They respond immediately. They have to leave whatever they have going on to come follow him. And yet you can see his goodness. They have this feeling of freedom and forever sort of happiness. And they contract it just by coming into contact with him. And that is the proper response of our hearts to him and to his reign. To see his lordship, to experience his goodness, to turn from the things of this world that will never satisfy you, from the idols of your heart, and worship him instead. He's a king like no other, and that's the story of our whole Bible. He has done great things for us, his people, over and over again. He has shown his power over everything in the world, and yet he is still more merciful and gracious than any other person or any other king you've ever heard of as well. And now you can blame Drew for what I'm about to do. I'm going to quote Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, and C.S. Lewis. I've heard him do it so many times, I wasn't sure I was allowed to preach here and not quote C.S. Lewis. Um, but as, as Lewis is describing Aslan, who's his Christ figure, he's, he says, safe, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
that quote, we use it so much and we find it so good and so powerful because it wraps up pretty perfectly who our God is, right? He is the most holy, powerful being to ever exist. And that is not safe for a sinful people like us because sin cannot bear to be in his presence. But he's good, and that's evidenced by every step of redemptive history where he provides a way for a sinful people to draw near to him without fear of death. He is good, and he loves us, and he delights in us, right? We go back to Genesis 3 again, thinking about what happens immediately after we sin. What does the Lord do? He issues a judgment, yeah, but then he also provides a covering for the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. It's what happens when the Lord gives Israel the law we find in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. The holy God gives sinful man a way to draw near to him. And now as we get to Christ, we get to see it again and we know how the story ends, right? He dies and he rises again to conquer sin and death once and for all, beginning his rule. And the sin of the people of God is gone. It is legally gone. And now we get to draw near to him fully just as we were created to do. And so if that's his reign that Matthew is telling us about, we also get to see its effects, right? The restoration it brings, look there in verse 23, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The kingdom of God is dynamic and restorative. It brings everything back to the way it should be, right? He is rescuing our world from the brokenness of sin and its effects and taking us back to the intended created state that was good. If we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, again, I know I've gone back to it a lot this morning, but it's important to think about. Everything was created good. Our sin is what distorts it, and the effect was death, but not just death. It's this pervasive corruption that is the root of every disease and every affliction we know. So these miracles of Jesus, they really are just a breaking in of the way things are supposed to be. The absence of sickness and diseases, of pains and paralysis, of hurricanes and earthquakes, of addiction and depression, that is part of our hope in the kingdom. Christ is just giving us a little a foretaste in his public ministry of what's coming. We're being redeemed to perfection with him. We look at the beginning of the Bible, we can look at the end of it too, and the story is the same, right? You look in Revelation 21 and 22 and there's a scene of newness there. It's a huge feast in the new heavens and the new earth. You can see the promise of renewal in, the, in just the name. A holy city, a physical dwelling place that is made beautiful and glorious by his presence, a place where we can draw near to God and dwell with him again. A place where all sad things have come untrue as he wipes away the tear from our eyes where death and mourning and pain are no more. That is the promise to us. And this gospel, this good news, is that he has begun that redemption here and now with every work he did and every word he spoke. Everything he did was restorative. He ministered to the physically ailing and the emotionally and spiritually downcast because it was all of importance to him. So however you're suffering this morning, and everybody, I mean, 2020, right? Vicky mentioned it earlier. Thank goodness it's the last uh, service of 2020, but everybody can feel that pain and suffering in some way. And he draws near to you in that. Because the Lord is in the business of turning our upside down world right side up again. And his plan is so grand, we can't really grasp the whole of it. But here in the life of Christ, we get to catch a glimpse. And we get to see his heart for us. And it's not yet finished either. 
The public ministry of Jesus, like we just said, ends with his resurrection, overcoming sin and death, ascending to his throne, beginning his rule, but we can still feel the effects of sin in the world. It's this already but not yet uh, reign. He will come again to fully remove sin in the world. That's what he promises as he goes to heaven to rule. But for now, we can trust that he's the good king. Can't we? Knowing that he keeps his promises is evidenced by Christ coming and dying for us in the first place. That's keeping the greatest promise of all time. We can trust in his plan of restoration and live deeply affected by the promise he gives us. And know that for now he invites us to join him in this restorative work. And that's the greatest part of redemption is this reconciliation between God and man. Because the promise is not just newness, it's not just renewal, it's the nearness of God. Look at the text again in verse 17, the kingdom is at hand. Other translations say the kingdom is near. In verses 19 and 22, he's personally speaking to people. He's going to their neighborhoods, their gathering places, their workplaces. Our king is near to us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, when he's talking about the incarnation, he says it this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out. You see, the purpose of his coming was not just to get rid of our sin. That's often where we stop, right? We like to say Jesus died for our sins at the end. But it's really just a necessary step. It's really important. It's a really big thing. Don't hear me wrong there. It absolutely has to happen, but it's just a necessary step to get to the true purpose, which is relationship with him again. In the institution of the kingdom of God, the the beginning of his reign, it starts in the hearts of his people. It starts with us. Holy Spirit comes and invades our hearts because of Christ's work. He isn't just near like Christ was in the incarnation. He physically indwells those who are covered in Christ's work. And through that, we get to be a part of bringing the kingdom to bear wherever we are. Uh, it's like when I was a little kid and my dad was teaching me how to cook. I told him I was going to use him as a, a, an example this morning, but I didn't tell him what. So I think he's probably a little bit nervous maybe. But um, <laughs> uh, as he's teaching me to cook as I'm a little kid, I'm too short to even reach the sink or the countertop to prepare the food. He'd have to hold me up or bring a step to stand on, and I probably just made a mess. I was of very little help to him. Uh, but why did he do that? It would have been so much easier for him, so much faster for him to just make the meal by himself and not worry about me. But he loved and delighted in his son learning to love what he loves. There I was, a kid made in his image, learning to love and delight in what he did, growing in it, and it made his heart rejoice. And that is the heart of the God we serve. He invites us into the process of sharing the gospel of the kingdom with others. He invites us to love our enemies. He invites us to show others the hope and the goodness of his reign. And in that, he's inviting us to see what he loves. He's inviting us to see his heart for us and all of creation. So after that, we can see the hope of the kingdom is not just the newness he brings, but the nearness. We dwell with God again. And that has been the purpose since the beginning. A professor of mine, uh, he wrote a fantastic book called Grounded in Heaven. And this is kind of the main thrust of the book. Think about how the Bible begins again. We are with God in paradise. We're daily communing with him. We are daily worshiping him. 
the creation culminates in the presence of God and man. That is the pinnacle of its goodness. And how the Bible ends isn't all that different. Instead of a garden, it's a city, but the heart of the story is still the same. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Because you see, God isn't just the cause of our hope. He's the very center of our hope. He is the blessing. Everything else is merely a gracious addition. And in this quote from Martin Luther, you can see it so well. The, the Christian faith is primarily a matter of personal pronouns. I will be their God. They will be my people. You can hear this sense of possession and relationship in those words, can't you? He delights in us and desires to have us be with him. He desires to share good things with us out of the fullness of his love. Do you know that is what you're made for? You're made for communion with God and worshiping him. The hope is that our holy God has made a way for us sinful, rebellious people who fight him at every turn to come back and draw near to him again. And as we sang Holy Night last week, uh, I couldn't help but feel that promise in this stanza, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What he's saying is all of creation could feel the nearness of its creator come to make right every wrong thing in the world. We were miring in our sin and our error until he appeared and we felt our worth, we felt our purpose of knowing and loving and worshiping him. He brought us a thrill of hope against the weariness and brokenness of this world, a weariness that we seem to have felt in an even higher dose this year to know that a new and glorious day is breaking. A day that is shedding light on the glorious new reality that changes everything because God himself has come to redeem us to perfect relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is our hope, not just not sinning. Sin has to be dealt with because it can't stand in the presence of our holy God without being destroyed. And if he's drawing near, we've got to do something about it. But we can't. We can't do anything about it. Paul tells us we are dead in our sins, right? You can do no more to save yourself than you can raise yourself from the dead. That's a big problem. You've got to realize that's a big problem or the gospel doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> We need somebody to do that for us. So Christ dies to remove our sin, but that's not really the end goal. The end goal is not just removal of sin. It's the nearness of God and man, and getting rid of sin is just a necessary step to get us there. We can see it even back in the prophets in Jeremiah 24. Uh, My eyes will watch over them for their good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God. And they will return to me with all of their heart. We get so caught up in thinking about sin, uh, trying to find our love and acceptance elsewhere, or thinking about not sinning and trying to earn God's approval in his favor. And we forget that in Christ, he's already come and declared, I love you, I'm for you, the verdict is in, you're not guilty. He's already set his love upon you if you're in Christ. He's adopted you as children and heirs to everything he has. Look back at your assurance of pardon in Ephesians. You are a part of his family. 
You're part of the household of God. You are being made into a dwelling place for a holy God. You are in the closest of relationships with him. And how amazing is it the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, has already issued that verdict over you that I love you. I am your God and you are my people. Now you get to receive the blessing of his presence and it's never because of anything we've done but always in spite of what we've done, right? In Deuteronomy, uh, again, the Lord says uh, he chose us to be his treasured possession not because of us, not because we were great in number, because you were the least, not because of anything we'd done, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. That's why he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. That's what we're told in scripture. And that is a king worth following. A king that wants to be in a relationship with you and has stopped at nothing to draw near to you. It's not all about not sinning. It's about loving him with your whole being, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, as he tells us in his word. Because that's what you were made for. This reign that brings redemption and reconciliation, that's what enables us to live lives differently. Because we are so deeply affected by that promised future. No amount of redoubled effort in your life will ever conquer sin in your heart. It will never make you more acceptable to God. That cannot be our hope because it's going to leave you exhausted and it's totally opposed to his kingdom and his reign. Now, the hope of the Christian is that the Lord loves us with a steadfast love and he keeps his promises to us that the good king will draw near us to him and all things will be made right by his reign and that we will dwell with him in a perfect relationship just like we were created to do. That's what his kingdom brings, and that's good news, guys. I can't get up here and preach without knocking this thing over, I swear. Uh, Anyways, uh, yeah, that's good news, so let's pray. Uh, Father, God, we just, we thank you for how, how great and powerful you are, but not only that, how good you are to us, your people. That your heart longs to be with us, that you long to redeem us back to a perfect state of communion with you. Lord, please come. Let your spirit shape us to become more and more like you daily. Overcome sin in our lives because we can never do it on our own. Let your reign begin in our hearts. Let the kingdom of God be something that is brought about wherever we are. Not because of us, but because of you. Uh, Father, we love you and we praise you and we hope that we realize that you are what we were created for. And all these things we say in your son's name, amen. Amen. Our best days are in front of us. Amen. Um, So Ethan and Hannah and all of you, thank you for leading us this morning so well. Vicki, thank you for your part. And um, if you, when you pick your kids up from the, from the, from the kids worship over there, thank those people for coming on this cold morning right after Christmas and, and serving us that way. And Austin, thank you. Great job. Uh, And uh, yeah, there you go. And really, I want to acknowledge uh, if you help with kids and kids worship on Sundays or, you know, in the student ministry, whatever, we are, we are committed to raising a, the next generation of, of pastors, church planters, church leaders, because we believe that would be a great way for us to have a multi-generational impact upon our city. That's always been our goal. And so I'm so grateful to the Lord when we get little glimpses of how he's already answering our prayers. And so 
Uh, you're just an encouragement to us, so thank you. And the, 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 the line that got me this morning that was so helpful to me was uh, that we're not looking just for newness, but really the promise is nearness. And that's what these words mean. These words are the promise that God now sends us, but he sends us not to do this on our own. He sends us with the promise of his nearness. He sends us to make things new from the power of his nearness. And, and so receive these words of benediction as yours if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise as you look to this new year that we're entering into in the next few days. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming this morning. Go in his peace.